Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Darko Audio Podcast. Our first for 2024. We haven't done one since the end of November. And in this podcast, I am once again joined by Srijan from Six Moons. And we have plucked not four, but six different news stories from the ether that have cropped up in the last month or so. This podcast is going out here on YouTube, obviously, because that's how you're watching it. But if you're listening to it, then obviously you're listening to the audio version, which is going out on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and a whole bunch of other services. However, there is a twist for this year, because what Sajan and I have decided to do is not just hit you with the fluff of news stories, because they really are fluff, but also try and extract a an educational moment from each news story so we can try and learn something. But we obviously are doing it to the best of our abilities. We don't know everything about Hi-Fi, but we know some things and we hope that sharing those some things with you will, I guess, just help elevate everybody's understanding. So the first item is a new streaming amplifier model from Name. If you want more information on any of the products discussed in this podcast, I'll put links in the description box below. This episode is brought to you by Marantz, now celebrating its 70th anniversary. Click the link in the show notes for more information. So welcome back, Srijan. Another, another season of the Darker Audio podcast is upon us. Glad to be here in sunny Ireland for a change. Oh yeah, actually that reminds me. Yes, it's it's super sunny here today. The the crappy weather that was forecast this week is is now off the menu. And so it's like I don't want to brag, but it's 20 degrees here right now and sunny. So I've got one of my doors open to the outside world. So if we hear car horns and traffic occasionally, you'll just have to wear it because I just want to kind of do the uh, the Lufton through the house, like air the house, because it, otherwise it gets super stuffy in here. So, um, yeah, just in case anybody hears any kind of environmental noise, that is why. So anyway, in this second season, Srijan, we've kind of resolved not only to cover news items as they sort of appear or in the month that they appear, but also to sort of turn them inside out to reveal maybe a, a learning point from each one. I think that's what we're doing, isn't it? Yes. I mean, I think if news items are entertainment, you know, for hobbyists that like to sort of stay in touch with what's going on in their hobby, then having some facts in there that explain how certain things work. If this or that, the other person in our audience walks away and has understood something better than mm. they knew before, I think then we serve the purpose of entertainment and a little bit of Education, maybe? Yeah, maybe. Well, we'll see how we go because I'm going to launch straight into the first news item that came out, I think, about two weeks ago. And it's from the British hi-fi company Name, which is also, I guess, paired with Focal now. So they're owned by an investment group. And yeah, but Name have a new amplifier just announced and it's part of their Unity series. So... Mm-hmm. The Unity Atom is the half-width box. The Unity Nova is a, is a full-width box that looks like a, basically a garage is built, built onto the side of a Unity Atom. So okay. we still get what I consider to be the best volume control 
in the world. I really do think it is. It's wonderfully smooth on the top of the, the Unity Nova and the Unity Atom. But yeah, so name's new Unity item is the Unity Nova Power Edition, or PE. Now, I think they've introduced this because dealers have been clamoring for more power from those Unity series because previously the Unity Atom, well, still does, I mean, still for sale, gives us 40 watts per channel. The standard Unity Nova gives us 80 watts per channel, but the, the new Power Edition gives us 150 watts per channel into 8 ohms and 250 into 4. And it's almost the same as the original, apart from two key areas. So it still does like all the streaming smarts, the connectivity on the back is pretty much the same as the 5,000 euro-ish Unity Nova, but the Unity Nova Power Edition is coming to market at almost twice the price, 10,000 euros or 10,000 US dollars. And I think that's to be noted, but the other thing that I think will make many name purists sit up and take notice is this is a Class D amplifier from Name, and I think it's their most conspicuous deployment of Class D to date. I think so. I don't think they've maybe they have in car audio or in that in the Muso, you know, the kind of the sort of soundbar type thing. Pretty sure that's Class D, and we'll get to this right because it's that's a small container for speakers and for amps, and obviously one of the things we'll get to is that Class D goes into smaller spaces than Class A B amplifiers. But I kind of wanted to pick apart the differences between Class A, Class A B, Class B, and Class D. Now, if I get anything wrong here, Sajan, please speak up and, and let me know, because I did write an article about this a couple of years ago, and I had to go long on research on that. And it's been a while, so I went back to it to kind of put my notes together. And I think I've got it. So basically... Inside, I, I think the output stages of most amplifiers, well, all amplifiers, are essentially transistors, right? And they travel in pairs. So we have two on the left channel, two on the right channel, minimum. I mean, they can... You want we to, can have just one. We don't need a pair. You, it's okay, but that's, that's generally... That's single-ended. But how many single-ended transistor amps are there? I don't think there are that many, are there? Uh, the first what? And then you can oh. have parallel. You can have okay. parallel single-ended, but you run two or four or six per yes. side. Yes. And they're not push-pull. Okay. So when we're talking about push-pull and single-ended here, what we mean is that in a single-ended transistor, that one transistor does the up half of the sound wave and the down half as well, right? Correct. But in a push-pull design, and this is where I think name amplifiers, the class A B amplifiers work, they have maybe two, maybe four, maybe six per side. I don't know the numbers, but when you have uh, an even number per side, so they travel in pairs, you have one transistor doing the up half and then the other transistor does the down half of the sound wave, right? So it's kind of like, that's why it's called push-pull. It's like one section does one part and the other transistors does the other half. And as far as I know, m well, not most of them are MOSFETs because there are different kinds of transistors, right? Shajan? Yeah, bipolars, for example. Okay. I'm going to use MOSFETs because they relate to what we're going to get to. So, but generally, we're just talking about transistors that drive our loudspeakers. Now, in a class A amplifier, let's say we've just got a simple push pull design and we've got a pair of transistors on the left channel and a pair on the right. So, if we look at each pair, 
in a class A design, both of those transistors will be switched on all of the time. So if a signal goes up through the, say, the transistor A and then down through transistor B, both of those transistors are on even if they're not doing anything. Correct. And this is why class A amplifiers generally in the main tend to run hot because they'll pull a certain amount from the wall and if it's not pushed into the amplifier to drive a speaker cone in a certain direction, it must be dissipated in heat. Well, right? in fact, a class A amplifier will draw the same power at idle right. as it does yeah. under full power. So just sitting there doing absolutely nothing, if you wait for 15 or 20 minutes until the transistors have sort of heated up, mm. you'll have a little space heater sitting there. Yes, and then yes. when you actually play music at high volumes, it's putting out this, it's drawing the same amount of current from the wall, voltage. Right. But people, I mean, they don't love <laughs> the space heater element of class A amplifiers, but they tolerate it because a lot of people talk about the sweet sound of class A amplifiers. But they tend to be large and bulk, well, not always bulky because there's that musical fidelity A1, which was reintroduced last year. That's class A. That's about 1500 euros, I think. And I'm getting one later this year, but I spoke to somebody who'd reviewed one recently. And he said, yeah, it runs pretty damn hot. So that's class A. Obviously, the downside is the heat. So what follows that really is this concept of class B, which we hardly ever see. And there's a reason for that. So what class B does is it says, well, OK, if a class A, if one of the class A transistors is idle, whilst it's not doing anything, we may as well just turn it off. So we, we're not wasting any power when we're not pushing out more heat into the room. So basically, the transistor is only engaged when it's needed for the signal. So it turns on and off as requested, right? Now, there is a small window, I think. I'm trying to kind of hold my fingers up to show a little tiny gap between them. I guess we call it the crossover zone. So as the signal crosses from the top half of the waveform into the lower half, you want a zone where it's a bit like a relay race. You're handing the baton across, right? So you want a, a zone where w both transistors are on momentarily, simultaneously. They overlap. You, right, they overlap so that the signal can pass from one to the other. And once the signal is handed off, like a, yeah, like a relay race, the first one goes off until it's needed again. So they're switching on and off pretty fast, but not as fast as they could do. We'll get to that in a moment. But the downside of that is because of that switching and because of that relay race crossover window, we get something called crossover distortion. Is this right, Sajan? I think I'm, I'm right about this, right? Yes. It's basically when you cross the zero line, mm -hmm. you have your positive half of the wave and you have the negative half. And when they cross the zero line, they're supposed to meet. The handoff is supposed to be instantaneous. Mm. But if for some reason it is slightly delayed, yeah, like when in your baton race, if yeah. you're doing the handover, the first guy isn't letting go fast enough, the mm -hmm. second guy already has it, and yes. now the first guy is pulling on the other, you have a little bit of an inefficiency. So the right. idea is the first guy lets go the microsecond that the second guy has a firm grip. Right. And so because of that distortion, apparently it's, it's pretty damn audible, and it's not very pleasant. So we don't I don't think I've ever seen a class B amplifier. Maybe one exists, I don't know. So then what we have is really to get the best of both worlds, 
because class B, you can, I think you can get more power out of class B than you can, can get out of class A for the same wattage input from the wall. I think I could be wrong about that. Do you know, Shrujan, or is this something? I'm not, not sure. What's definitely true is that you will get more power out of the same size box with the same amount of heat sinks because it's more yes. efficient. Yeah. So yeah. you can run the circuit harder if you have a power supply that you can deliver. I mean, that would make sense because if we look at a class AB amplifier, which is a combination of class B and class A, we can get more power, than, generally speaking, than class A. So if you look at your average let's say you pick five class A amplifiers and five class B, generally speaking, you'll find that the class A, B set offer more power for your loudspeakers. Not a huge amount, but an, enough to be noticeable. So how does a class A, B circuit work? Well, again, you've got your transistor pairs on each channel. And what happens is, is you have a certain amount of class A bias. So what that means is that the, both of the transistors, the upper half one and the lower half one, will stay on as long as this, they'll both stay on at the same time simultaneously, as long as the signal's kind of like chugging along at a fairly low level. So we might be listening quietly or the music might not be too demanding. But if we turn the volume up or the music, music suddenly wants more oomph to drive the, the speaker drivers, what happens then is it kind of moves into class B. So as the signal ramps up, the, the other transistor that's not in operation, then it switches off. It's, it's not needed for that that time. And then it might come down again. And then the upper half transistor switches off and the, the lower half transistor switches on again. And it will behave in sort of this class B mode until the signal drops down in level or we turn the volume down, right? So you can get... Correct. And that's yeah. a completely smooth transition between the B mode when the transistors keep switching on and off mm. and the A mode when the transistors both stay on. It's not like a Harley-Davidson clutch where suddenly you go <laughs> from class A, B to A. It's completely right. smooth. Yeah, so I mean, from my understanding, class A, B reduces drastically the amount of crossover distortion. I don't think it gets rid of it completely because I know that um, amplifier designers are always sort of battling to lower crossover distortion in their designs, but it's way better than class B, which is why class AB has been the main topology for the majority of amplifiers. Well, I won't say for the last 50 years, but certainly up until about 20 years ago, that was all you could really get, right? Was class, class AB and class A. But then about 20 years ago, class D was introduced. Now the D in class D does not mean digital. Now, a digital amplifier is something completely different. I'm not going to talk about it today, but two examples in case you want to go and look it up is a Lingdorf amplifier, the, the, the modern ones with the streaming and the room perfect correction. And also Peachtree have a power amplifier, which takes a, a digital input, and that's a digital amplifier, but they work very differently to class D. Now, a class D amp, and this is something that Blew my mind, Sajjan, when I first discovered this. Because I, I never knew what was switching in the output stage because Class D amps are often known as switching amps, right? So I'm thinking, what is switching? So it, it can't be a transistor, can it? Well, it turns out it bloody well is. So the same type of transistor, well, actually, it's not the same type. It's usually a MOSFET. Well, uh, well, not, not nowadays, but we'll get to that later in the episode. But usually a MOSFET because... Of all the transistors available, apart from one, it offers the fastest switching speed, 
which is why you don't see a bipolar and a class D amp switching. Now, when we're talking about switching, we're talking at a ludicrously fast rate, far greater than a class A, B MOS, sorry, a class A, B or class B MOSFET would switch because it's almost like, now I've got to be very careful here, but it's a bit like DSD switching, but it's not DSD because DSD is pulse density modulation and a switching amplifier is pulse width modulation. But the print, there are some principles that are shared between the two. I'm not going to commit myself to saying exactly what they are. But I'm, I'm, I'm going to throw in maybe something that will help. Yep. If you think sure. of class D, um, like Morse code, right? right? You, yep. you have pulses of different lengths. And the length of these pulses describes both the amplitude and the frequency of, of the waveform. The continuous waveform. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. a different way of describing it, right. the waveform. So this is a very, very efficient way of using your transistors to effectively make a sound through your loudspeakers. So I think class D amps are something like over 90% efficient, right? Mm -hmm. So what, what power goes in is used to drive the loudspeakers and very, li very little escapes in, in heat through the chassis. We don't need as much heat sinking on a class D amp, although some of them do because some of that switching can get slightly warm and not all class D amps run stone cold or cool. But it's a very efficient, very environmentally friendly way to drive your speakers. And it's also much gentler on your power bill. Correct. As far as I know. So, and well, we'll get to where we see class D amps later on. But the downside of class D amps, the way I understand it, and again, Sujan, correct me if I've got this wrong, is noise. So when you switch something extremely quickly, you produce, produce a lot of very, very, very high frequency noise, which humans cannot hear, but it still has to be filtered out of the of the well the signal band, right? I won't say the audible band because we are hearing stops at 20 kilohertz. And we're talking are we talking megahertz here, Sujan, or is it just very high kilohertz? My understanding is that the fastest class D amplifiers that I know of, mm -hmm. where there's a number available, they switched at 550 kilohertz and 800 kilohertz. That seems to be okay. about the ceiling, and they don't use the general MOSFET, the silicon MOSFET type. Okay. We'll get into that later on. I will, yeah. So, okay, so we're not quite into the megahertz range. We're still in the kilohertz range, but it still has to be filtered. And as far as I know, this is very similar to class D noise filtering. So, you know, the, the further away... You mean, you mean DSD? Sorry, DSD class field, yeah. yes. So the further away from the audible band the noise sits, so the faster switching, essentially. The faster switching, the, the further away the noise can sit from the audible band. And that also, therefore, has a knock-on effect that the filters that are used to take it out can be shallower, and they, they're, yeah, they're just further away from the audible band. I mean, this reminds me of when I'm talking about high res because people say, oh, you know, what's the point of high res because we can't hear above 20 kilohertz? Well, it's because it's the filters, right? You've got to look at the filters and where they are and how steep they are, right? That's what affects, well, it's one of the factors that allows in some cases for high res to sound better than CD quality, but not always. But again, it's, it, it's always about implementation. I don't want to say that, Class A is better than Class D, or Class D is better than Class A. Always down to implementation. Would you agree with that, Sujan? Or yes, and I think I would like to add mm -hmm. that 
unlike maybe popular misconception, that class D and switch mode power supplies are not necessarily wedded at the hip. So you can have a switching mm -hmm. output stage that works yeah. in class D combined with a linear power supply. Mm -hmm. You can have the inverse. You can have a linear output stage, a class A or class AB output stage that is driven by a switch mode power supply. Mm -hmm. Okay. I mean, I, I surveyed my YouTube audience because it's a way for me to talk to like many thousands of people. And I just said, hello, loudspeaker people, what class is your amplifier, right? This is on the community page on YouTube, uh -huh. 10,000 votes, right? This is what I love about YouTube. You get masses of people. And I did this poll last year, but the results are similar this year. I did it last week. So of those 10,000 people, 11% say they're using class A, 43% uh -huh. say they're using class AB, 26% say they're using class D, We've got three percent with none of the above, so they might be using either a switching digital ampli sorry a digital amplifier, or they'll be using a class G that Arcam uses. What, mm -hmm. what is class G? I never really understood it. I believe, and I might be wrong, but I believe that class G is the next form of class AB, mm -hmm. where you have two different voltage rails. So uh, depending okay. on the amount of draw that the amplifier has to put out, it switches to a higher voltage. And then it the uh, rail, yeah, okay, and then yeah, it's yeah. a lower rail. Right, that makes sense. That makes sense. And then tellingly, and I guess maybe this is because it's a YouTube audience. Seventeen percent say I don't know what class my amplifier is, which you know that's that's almost a fifth of people. So it is a pretty dry topic. <laughs> I really do think so. But a lot of audiophiles are very. I don't know. It, it's almost. Along with streaming service choices, amplifier topology choices are almost like the identity politics of the hi-fi world because people see they can't separate themselves from their hi-fi choices. So they'll say things like, over my dead body, will I have a class D amplifier? Because class D amplifiers, when they first came out, I believe, I wasn't around listening to them at the time, but what from what everybody tells me is that in the early 2000s, mid-2000s, they sounded like shit. They were cold, hard, bright, all of those nasty words. Maybe these are the words that we associate with third order or fifth order harmonic distortion. I don't know. But one of my favorite amplifiers of the last couple of years is Class D. And I love the form factor that you can get from Class D, which is much harder to get from Class AB. Can we ask which one that is, your favorite amplifier? Yes, you can, because it's it's going to be featuring in a video this weekend, actually. It's the NAD M23, which uses um, the Purify Eigentax module mm -hmm. that uh, Bruno puts his Lars Risbo and Peter Lingdorf co-developed a couple of years ago. I love the sound of that thing, because it's just got this... I don't know how to describe it. It, it I think it's very microdynamically lively. So it, you can really get a sense of not just the big rhythms, but the smaller ticks and pulses as well. And it doesn't sound cold. It doesn't sound sterile. It doesn't sound like a class AB amplifier, like a big Hegel H590. They sound different. You know, the, the Hegel is a bit more rounded, I think, maybe on some of the spikier transients. I think class D, when it's done poorly, gets those transient spikes wrong. And they can come across like needles and pins. I don't like that. But that's pretty rare these days. I don't think a class D amplifier that does that would be on the market for very long. Because there are so many good ones now.
Right. I mean, you've you've heard some very exotic class days, Rajan, or no? Yes, uh, one by Alberto Guerra, mm-hmm. an Italian designer who now works out of LA. Mm-hmm. AGD is his brand, Alberto Guerra Design Productions. Mm-hmm. And Merrill Audio out of, I believe, Canada. Mm-hmm. Now we're talking very expensive right. 20K, 30K for a pair of Class D monoblocks. Wow, okay. Which used to be anathema. It used to be impossible when mm-hmm. Class D was still thought to be just fit for subwoofers. And then it was just fit for lo fi. Mm-hmm. But I don't exactly know when, but I think if we say 10 years ago, sort of yeah, the tide started yeah. to shift. And I think now Class D is, has become respectable. It's now a valid alternative, even in the high end, to traditional Class A or Class AB amplifiers. I mean, I don't, I don't want to give Bruno puts this too much credit here, but it did seem the tide did seem to turn when he introduced, or he and his team did the UCD module, the Encore module, and then now we've got this Purify. I know there are others like Pascal, Ice Power. Uh, who else is there? I've forgotten now. Who else makes Class D modules? Powersoft. Right. But as you just pointed out, Srijan, a Class D amplifier sound is not just the module. It's also the power supply that feeds the module. And as you said, it could be linear, it could be switching. And it's also the output filter. Right. Yeah, the filter. And how, yeah. And how that output filter and the loudspeaker load interact with the feedback that's inside the class D output stage. Right. So all of those are sort of variables that interact in different ways. Hmm. So let's bring it back to the name very quickly before I end end this segment. So we've got this new power edition of the Unity Nova, 10,000 euros, I think. I think it might be a Purify module. I tried to get confirmation on this from name's PR team, external third-party PR team. And they, they said, oh, we've got a, we've got some information for you, John, from Steve Sells at name who wants to say something about the, the Class D implementation here. But that wasn't forthcoming. And I asked again a couple of days ago, specifically because I knew we were going to talk about this this podcast. And again, nothing. So I've asked, I've tried to dig under the hood to work out what's inside this amplifier and knowing name and looking at the pricing they're not going to be skimping on the quality of the, they can't because they have been class AB for decades. So if they get this wrong, that's going to cause them tons of brand damage. And the flip side is if they get it right, like we assume it legitimizes class D even further when the brand like name that's has been a mainstay Hmm. gets behind a class D amplifier. Come to think of it, we should also give credit to, to people who are who have who about ten years ago made very good class D implementations. I'm thinking of John Stronzer at Belcanto and EJ Sarmento at Wired for Sound, who seems mm-hmm. to have been, dropped off the map a little bit these days. But his uh, like class D, the was it called the M amp, little half width? Yeah, based on ice power. Fantastic, fantastic little unit, you know, like and. Yeah, I'm sure there are tons of these things. I don't want to labor the points, Rajan, and I know that I've spoken way too long in this first segment. So let me let me hand the uh, the floor over to you. You can give us a news item and an educational lesson. Well, I'm going to talk about a problem solver. Okay. But before I mention it, there's uh, the usual small print, which is, that those people who believe that bit perfect 
in a digital transmission, in like an Ethernet transmission, is mm. all that matters, they won't be very happy about what I have to say. Okay. Now, <laughs> I will admit that in my case, a 30-meter Ethernet cable mm. between my router and my music iMac, the next room over, is all that I have ever needed to get music signal without any distortion, without any dropouts, without any crackles or bit perfect, mm -hmm. end to end, no problem. Don't need anything else. Mm -hmm. Now, if I had known at the time that you could go from, and now I'm going to show John that I could go from this okay. type of cable, okay, which so is just an ordinary Ethernet what would cable. you call this? Yeah, you're, holding up, you're holding up an Ethernet cable, right? So it's correct. I think everyone knows what it looks, 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 looks like. Yeah. So that instead of having to route 20 or 30 or 40 meters of this stuff up the stairs and across the hallway underneath the carpet, mm -hmm. that I could have used something like what am I showing you now? Okay, this is a much thinner cable, much thinner. It doesn't look as stiff as Ethernet either. And then it's got some kind of weird ass blue plastic termination on the end so you know what it looks like it looks like the fiber optic cable that comes out of my wall downstairs that goes into my modem because i've got fiber ethernet ethernet fiber internet here it looks like that but that's what it is ah okay it's fiber optics mm -hmm. now we can't plug this directly this end into a component we still need this bit, and if I put this close enough, you may see that there's a, a circuit boardy thing on the inside. So when okay. you say, when we say this and this, we're talking about you can't put the 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 fiber cables put... the fiber fiber cables termination into your modem because it's the wrong socket. Yes, and you also can't put it in the in the rear of your Melco uh, streamer or Lumen streamer. Right. That's yes. the right socket. You right. need this piece which goes on here. So you've got like, like it's okay, so a metal adapter goes on the end of your fiber optic, yeah, right? I right. call it a cartridge. Okay. Yeah. And inside that cartridge you have what converts the electrical signal into an optical signal. Okay. It's a little bit like Toslink, mm. except that fiber optics for network use has much more bandwidths than a copper Ethernet cable. Mm -hmm. It has way more bandwidth, which is why it's used for high-speed uh, internet. Mm. It can be run across much longer distances. It's mm -hmm. completely immune to picking up external noise because mm. it's not an electrical signal. It's just light. It's much easier to route and, hallelujah, it's much cheaper. You can get 100 meters of this stuff for like $40, $50. And how much does 100 meters of Ethernet cable cost you? More. <laughs> I don't remember what I paid, but yeah. I remember that when I bought my 30, 40 meter spurs, it cost me more. Mm -hmm. So even if this skinny cable had no other benefit than being easier to route mm. and being cheaper, I would still prefer that over Ethernet cable. Now, what do we need if we have an ordinary router like my IT company gave me when I signed up for the Internet mm. and there is no fiber optic Port Socket, yeah, on the back. Yeah, yeah. We need what's called a media converter. Mm -hmm. So the media converter will have an RG45 input or output, mm. and it will have a second port, which is called an SFP, small form factor 
pluggable, which is catchy, the, which is the equivalent <laughs> to this thing. And it looks like it I'm, looks like. OK, so I need to describe this, this right Shajan, for anybody that's listening to this podcast and not watching the video version. So we've got. From what I can tell, you've got an Ethernet input and an SFP output. I mean, there's other LAN sockets. It's it's a it's a kind of a I don't know. It's it looks like it's roughly the size of say a MyTech Brooklyn Bridge, or maybe you're not quite as deep and a bit wider. Exactly, it's it's a network switch, right? But you don't need but, those LAN sockets no. on the back, right? If you no. if you're doing conversions. So what, so what we're talking about right now, all we need are these two ports. So you need Ethernet and SFP. Exactly. Right. Now this company. LHY Audio, yeah. Exactly. LHY Audio is a subsidiary to Jay's Audio. Mm -hmm. And Jay's Audio, together with Denafrips and Kinky Studio, is one of the brands of the Singapore reseller Windshine Audio. Yes. And Windshine Audio has gotten so busy with Denafrips that they have split off Another company also based out of Singapore under the same management that's mm. called beattechnic.com. And Beat Technique globally distributes Jay's audio mm. and Lie Audio. And so now Lie Audio or L H Y audio has media converters. If you don't believe that they're important, you go to your local computer emporium and you spend 30 to 40 euros on a media converter mm -hmm. from TP-Link, all you need. If you do want to go a little bit higher end and get a linear power supply and you want to get a high quality femtoclock inside your media converter, Lie Audio now have one that is $494 delivered globally. But would you need two of them to do the conversion at either end? You would, unless you have a switch like this one mm -hmm. that already comes with one, or you have a streamer from Melco or Lumen that aside from the regular RJ45 Ethernet input also has a fiber optic input. So the I've got it behind me in a box actually. There's there's a NeoStream streamer from iFi. And that has an optical fiber-like input and a little box that does the conversion from Ethernet, but it's a different type of socket. It's not the one that you have there. It's the, probably the one that, that John Stronzer used for Bel Canto. It's called ST Fiber. Right. And it's a different kind of plug, but it's the same idea. Same principle, right? You convert your Ethernet to light, essentially, and it travels along your fiber optic cable until it needs to be converted back to Ethernet again or go straight into your, your media streamer as, as essentially light pulses, right? Yeah. And now I'm going to say something that will upset the people that think that BitPerfect Audio is all that matters. <laughs> okay. Uh-oh, so, look at our world. So what are we showing you now? So we've got two small Ethernet runs, and in the middle you've got this plastic box that looks I, – I think I used to have one of these years ago. And I think – I, yeah, this, it, it says Sotom on the top, I think. Yes, it's Soul of the Music, a right. South Korean company. And mm -hmm. what this gizmo in the middle is, when you open it up. So you've got, well, just a, a bunch of components on a board. 
the probably uh, you have basically uh, galvanic trainer. isolation in ah. between the input and the output. Oh, it's a galvanic isolator. Okay. Okay. Yes. Right. An inline Ethernet isolator. Mm -hmm. And now this is. I was always unhappy with the quality of cloud files versus mm -hmm. my local files in the main system. Mm -hmm. Even though the signal pass was the same, it was either internet coming into my iMac mm -hmm. or it was uh, USB 3 coming off an SSD drive that I have parked my library on. And then once they were inside the iMac, everything was the same. Mm. Local files sounded better to me, so I didn't really do any streaming. Mm. And finally, I got upset and said, what can I do? And I read up on it what the extremists, the streaming extremists do. And they said, <laughs> you need not only one switch, but you may need two or three network switches. Mm. So I got my first network switch. And yes, the sound got a little better, but it was still not the same as my local files. And then I got this one that I just showed you to review. Mm -hmm. And now I had two switches and I put them in series, adding this silly little gizmo in between. Mm. And now finally with two switches, an inline isolator, these two little pigtails, an internet ethernet cable on one side and ethernet cable on the other side, I finally had parity between mm -hmm. my local files and cloud files. And then when I finally had opportunity to review fiber optics, mm. I realized that I didn't need two switches in series. I didn't need my little inline isolator. I could just go from my router, fiber optics, into another media converter, into the iMac, and I got the same quality of sound. So, so I, if it was me today, if I, if I redid this installation, hmm. I would go for fiber optics. Okay. In, in preempting the comment section on this one, Srijan, two things I want to say here. Firstly, okay. I know some people are going to say that, well, if the ultimate in galvanic isolation or whatever kind of isolation between your router and your media streamer is Wi-Fi. Wi I know you don't do Wi-Fi, but this is what the comment section people will say. And one of, the way, one of the ways it was explained to me, and I guess this relates to my second point about Ethernet, because a lot of people will start their comment with, as a network engineer of 25 years, the people that have only worked in IT really only have to generally move files around, and time is not a component in that. But I know that Ethernet has foolproof error correction. Absolutely. Right. I'm never going to argue against that. Not at all. But the way it was explained to me was that on an Ethernet input, in order for it to do its error correction, it has different levels of error correction. Let's call them one, two, and three, right? So a fairly good signal will only ever need level one error correction. But if the signal gets noisier, it'll maybe bump up internally to level two, and then maybe also to level three if it's a really noisy incoming signal. And again, the way it was explained to me was that every extra layer of error correction introduces more electrical noise inside the component that you're trying to keep electrical noise out of, right? So you kind of, you get rid of it from the incoming signal, but you're generating your own, which also I think is the way that Wi-Fi 
what it's probably why Wi-Fi doesn't sound as good as people would expect. Because you would think, okay, well, if I can isolate my yeah my internet or my my modem router and my network streamer, the best way to do that is just use Wi-Fi, right? But the Wi-Fi circuit inside your network streamer is also generating electrical noise, which is might be why it doesn't sound as good as a hardwired connection. Nothing to do with errors, nothing to do with IT administration, network administration, because again, there's no time factor in moving a file or printing a, you know, printing a, an image to a printer. It doesn't matter whether the printer takes five minutes or 30 seconds or whether it does it, you know, in, in chunks. Whereas an audio stream can't arrive in chunks like that, separated by big, big gaps. It must be a re reasonably steady stream for the the receiver to make sense of it or to do what it needs to do. So to recap, I would say it's nothing at all to do with bit perfect, because if generic internet wasn't bit perfect, the stock market would collapse and online banking wouldn't work. If I'm trying to make a $30 transfer and the bank takes out 300, I'd be very unhappy. It never ever happens. But this is about ultrasonic noise that somehow ends up on the signal and travels from source to the load and interferes or diminishes the quality of our sound. And so the more of that noise we can remove, the better the sound gets, even though mm. we don't have more or less bits. Nothing there changes whatsoever. Right. But I think we should also remind viewers and listeners that this is what I call a skinny end of the audiophile wedge problem to solve right absolutely this, this is this is the last thing that you should ever really i think concern yourself with right your speakers your room your amplifier subwoofers dac and network streamer i guess that's kind of tied in with what we're talking about here so it really is a skinny end of the wedge it's why it's taken me 20 years to address this particular issue there was nothing else that i could do to my system hmm. i want to change it i have what i want i have what i could afford which works for my room and it was just this last thing that bothered me that my local file still sounded better than streaming. So I did streaming only on the desktop to find new music and for background entertainment. All the serious listening was done to local files. And now finally it has equalized. But like you said, it's the last sort of chrome polish, bead stripes, dusting that you should do, not before. All right, let me move on to um, my next item. And this is actually connected to our, my previous item related to class D. We have a new integrated amplifier from South Korea's Hi-Fi Rose, and it is called the RA280. Now, many people will, if they don't know Hi-Fi Rose, they might know of the, the, um, the full width, kind of, yeah, like a normal hi-fi component type touchscreen streamers. So they've taken the high-end market for touchscreen streamers by storm in the last couple of years, but they also had an amplifier called the RA180, which had the completely batshit crazy front panel with all the, the kind of bizarre knobs, switches, and dials, which actually related in many ways to its equally bizarre functionality because you could buy amp out of it so you could drive your, like I said, say a two-way, you could drive your mid-bass mid -bass driver with one portion 
and then the, the tweeter with the other portion of the amplifier. You can add a super tweeter to your speakers and drive that from this amplifier. And then it also had a DAC inside, but no streamer. It had MM phono and MC phono. And I think it was maybe 400 watts into eight homes, but I could be wrong about that. But it doesn't. it's really academic, really, for this, for this piece because the 280 is like a junior version. So it's cheaper. It's 3,500 euros, whereas the 180 was about five and something. And the 280 is much simpler on its front panel. It doesn't look as crazy or as batshit crazy as the first one. And it offers, yeah, 200 watts per channel into 8 ohms and 4 ohms. It doesn't have a DAC. It doesn't have the super tweet stuff. It doesn't have the biamp stuff. But it's got these things, right? The VU meters? <clears throat> it does have the VU meters, yes. So the, the 180 had the VU meters. The 280 does. But they're kind of small. But I think people do... Most audiophiles, I think, would say that VU meters are audiophile catnip. You know, they love them. That's kind of it. Certainly is, is for me anyway. Um, but the reason that I'm pulling this news item out of the drawer from what a week ago, two weeks ago, is because it's Class D. It's a switching amplifier, but it does not use MOSFETs. So a couple of years ago we started to see talk of a new type of switching device that could be used in power supplies. It's kind of big in the mobile phone brick charger world at the moment. And this is something called a GANFET. Mm -hmm. And according to my research, and I have to – I didn't write it down. I wrote it in an email to you, Sajan. I didn't write it in my notes. Damn it. <laughs> Basically, GANFET can switch – I think it's up to 100 times faster – than a MOSFET. Now, why is that important? Why is that useful to an audio amplifier designer? Well, if it switches faster, it means that the, the changeover delay between on and off is shorter. So we have less, I think they call it dead time, right? So the dead time on a GANFET is much smaller than on a MOSFET. I remember seeing years ago, people posting on forums going, if Class D had faster switching, it would be a viable proposition. Well, now it does in the form of GANFETs and in the form of a Hi-Fi Rose amplifier like the RA280, the new one, and the RA180, the old one. Who else uses GANFETs? I think Peachtree Gan Peach used them in their GAN1 power amplifier. I think it's in a MyTech amplifier, the big one. I think so. Mm -hmm. The Empire. The Empire, yes. I always forget the name of that. I don't know why, because it's New York. I mean, it should be pretty easy to remember, but it's not. And the so, two I mentioned earlier about expensive Class D I really enjoyed was mm -hmm. the HED and the Merrill Audio. And They're it turns out that the designer of AGD was actually personally involved in the design of the GAN-FED output device. Uh, okay. He worked for a company that developed it. And so right. I had I had some discussions with him, and he explained why a GANFET is specifically designed for Class D and does not really lend itself to Class A or AB mm. designs. Right. So it's designed explicitly to be to be a switching device, a very fast switching device, right? Correct. And I guess the the last benefit, which I kind of touched on before, was that because it switches faster, the noise that it generates is further away from the upper limit of the audible band. So it's mm -hmm. way out there. It still has to be filtered, but it can be filtered, yeah, 
further away from the audible band and with a shallower filter slope, I believe. So again, this is just like high-res audio, a little bit like DSD, but not entirely like DSD. Um, so yeah, I just think that's kind of interesting. That we're, I think we're going to see more and more Ganfet Class D amplifiers. I think that eventually they'll, they'll take over and they will be the dominant force in Class D. So MOSFETs, I think we'll just see eventually only used in Class A and AB implementations. They won't be used as Class D switches anymore. So I think if any, anything that people should really learn from this, if they didn't know it already, which I'm sure many people do, is that Class D amplifier is a switching amplifier, very, very fast switching amplifier, a bit like a, a, a switching power supply, which also switches very fast. Um, I've got a few <laughs> switching chargers and power supplies in this house. I know they are because they make a noise. I can hear them. They go, they're like a mosquito. If They're badly done, right? They're just for like batteries and things like that. But that is a switching power supply. And I think if you've got a switching power supply inside your amplifier, if it's well done, it won't make a noise. But some of the lesser ones, you can put your ear close up and you can hear the high-pitched whine of those switching devices. It won't even have to be a power supply. It might, could be, I think a switching regulator works in a similar kind of way. Well, interestingly enough, Lin Audio just introduced their new 800 Solo Climax or Climax mm -hmm. Solo 800. Mm -hmm. It's a 37,000 euro a pair monoblock. Okay. Class AB does 800 into 4 ohms and it's using a switch mode power supply. Uh, there we go. So, switch mode power supplies done properly is completely legit for high-end audio purposes. Nagra mm -hmm. Audio uses them, Cord Audio uses them, even yeah. a tube amplifier company, Manly Labs. And they right. use them, okay. designed by Bruno Putzi, specifically to get the noise floor of tube equipment much lower than they previously could. Ah, okay, I didn't know that. That's interesting. Mm. So I, just, yeah. like, just like Class D sort of had a bad rep with... Mm the high-end audio segment, so do switching power supplies. And I think they are also now sort of coming into their own mm -hmm. because companies like Lin and the ones that we just mentioned legitimize their use in high-end audio equipment. There is right. a guy, there's uh, a company in Germany called Linenberg. Mm -hmm. They have a class A amplifier with a switch mode power supply. Ah, okay. And AVIC in Denmark has their 880 components are all class A with four times 500 watt switch mode power supplies per amplifier. I think I'm about to get a case of the hiccups, Rajan, because I poured some water into my coffee cup and it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's sparkling. It's called Pedrash. It's uh, Portuguese. It's absolutely delicious. It's quite, kind of salty. Um, but yes, yeah, so I've just been guzzling it down. I'm hoping I don't get onset, early onset hiccups. Anyway, whilst I deal with that, back to you for another, another news item with an educational twist. Wait, so what what am I showing you? Uh, it is a big, chunky metal disc. It's about five centimeters across, about the size of a CD, roughly, but it's much, much deeper, and it looks kind of heavy by the way you're holding it. What would you call that if it was a steak or a burger? Is this like a, a half pounder or...? Yeah, it would be a, maybe a full pounder. <laughs> I mean, it's a it's a big sort of T-bone steak. It looks heavy. It looks, yeah. like a, it looks like a monster footer from a monster speaker. 
It is an isolation footer. And if I were to take off this this bit here, which is the height adjuster. So that, that then, kind of swivels, so rotates off, right? Yeah. Then we are left with that. And what this part here is, is a triple ball bearing isolator for vertical iso I mean, for a horizontal isolation. So that's the side to side movement, right? So the, the Correct. ball bearing, okay, right. There's another one with three ball bearings on the in the top. So this one jiggles left back and forth. Mm -hmm. And hidden inside the body is a viscoelastic uh, sleeve, like mm -hmm. a squishy material. Okay. And that's obviously then for vertical isolation, like right. the jackhammer isolation that we experience when we put especially a subwoofer mm -hmm. or a loudspeaker with low bass on the floor, and it interacts with the floor like a jackhammer. Right. When this first came out, without this additional isolator here, this piece sold for three hundred dollars. So hang on, we're talking about the inner ring, though the inner disc inside, right? This. If you yeah, take this this bit out, yeah. The, when you the, when you hang on, we, we we've got people listening, Sujan, so we need to kind of go right. beyond what what this is. So it's like the the inner cylinder, the inner portion of that isolator. Yes, when we take the upper ball bearing insert out. Mm -hmm. And we're just dealing with a hidden viscoelastic layer, and at the bottom, a three-ball bearing isolator. Mm -hmm. We're talking about a very heavy footer that sold for $300 a piece okay. from a company called Carbide Audio in Llano, Texas. Mm -hmm. And after they added the uh, second isolation layer on the top, ball bearing isolation layer, the price went up to $600. Mm -hmm. okay. Super effective. Excellent under equipment racks, subwoofers, or loudspeakers. But if, like me, your subwoofer only costs you 1,300 euros, a set of those, where you need at least three for 600, yeah. you're spending more on the footer than on the subwoofer. Doesn't make sense. Not happy math. No. And so the news item for today is that the same company mm. just came out with a miniature footer that okay. is less than five centimeters across and less than 27 millimeters tall. It has a single ball bearing and a set of three sells for $199 mm -hmm. and a set of four for $249. And a set of four can support 220 kilos, which should, for most intents and purposes, be enough even for really heavy, big, powerful Class A amplifiers. So why would why would I use one of the a set of those? What what's the benefit? It is physical isolation between mm -hmm. the component and whatever the component sits on. Mm -hmm. A loudspeaker will sit on the floor. If the floor is of a suspended design, like a wooden floor in a first or second story flat, mm -hmm. and you have a speaker that can do twenty five hertz, and you like to play it loud, that woofer movement inside the cabinet and the pressure inside the cabinet will transfer through the spikes into the floor. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit similar to like how a boom truck uses the entire chassis of the car as a quasi amplifier. It makes the woofers actually louder because they couple to the entire enclosure. But that sort of fake amplification, the mechanical iso uh, uh, structural amplification is always behind the beat. Mm -hmm. First, you have the woofer doing its thing, and then the car, or in our case, the room or right. the floor follows. Right. So if you want to sort of cut that coupling between the loudspeaker and the floor, you need an isolator. Mm. 
And viscoelastic materials like sorbosane or rubber mm -hmm. are one possibility, but they really only work in this axis. They don't work in that axis. When you hang on, we are going to stop you. Oh, in, up and down. Up and down, yeah. <laughs> yes, they don't work left and right. So horizontal, right, okay, yes. And horizontal <laughs> isolation via ball bearings comes from high-rise buildings, specifically in Japan, where they have a lot of earthquakes. Ah, yes. And so in order for the high-rise building not to shift as far back and forth like a tree in the wind where it then can actually you know get damaged mm. they have rollerball isolation at in the basement of the high-rise building so that instead of wobbling it just moves back and forth but stays straight i didn't so know that's that. where this technology originally came from right and so the news today is that if you have sort of eyed physical isolation footers that mm -hmm. are properly engineered but they were either too big, too heavy, or too expensive for your budget or taste, that now there's something much smaller available that is only lacking the viscoelastic element. Mm. So it doesn't have any squishy element hidden on the inside. It only has the ball bearing. It has a single ball bearing. So you mm -hmm. need a minimum of three of those. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right, brother, back to me then. Um, I want to talk about a, a, well, I won't call it a new loudspeaker because it's not. It was introduced last May is the first kind of sightings I've seen of it on the internet. But I want to talk about it today because it's new to me and I think it's, it has an interesting concept that we don't see very often in speakers. So it's made by Antelope Audio. I believe that's a Bulgarian company that make I think they make a lot of pro sound interfaces and DACs and ADCs and things like that. And they have occasionally drifted into the hi-fi space, but I haven't heard from them for many years. Have Same you? here. Right, no. okay. So this is a new loudspeaker, relatively new loudspeaker. It's called the Atlas i8, $5,000 US dollars a pair. And it's a three-way. So you look at the front of the speaker and you can see clearly see three drivers. Right, you see the tweeter, and that's coaxially. I can never say this. Coaxially mounted in the middle of the mid-range driver. Mm -hmm. We see that with care. I'm looking at a pair of LSX2 on my desktop right here. It's the same kind of thing, right? And it's generally done to improve the imaging capabilities of the speaker, roughly. Now, beneath that, beneath those two drivers, that coaxial arrangement is a bass driver. So you kind of go, okay, three-way. That makes sense. But the thing is, there are four drivers inside this loudspeaker. Not three, there are four. So yes, you've got one tweeter, one mid-range driver, and then you've got one bass driver that you can see, but there's one that's hidden. And it's actually mounted directly behind the, the, the outward-facing bass driver, and it's facing the same direction. Mm -hmm. So and it, I think from what I've gathered from reading up on this, they are sealed in their own enclosure. And so they both move in the same direction at the same time. That's the idea. And the idea behind this, and I've got to look at the gentleman's name who developed this in the 1950s. It's an old idea developed by a chap called Harry Olson. And so what he did was, yeah, put, put these two things. It's called yeah, isobaric. So that isobaric, I think, means equal pressure. But I don't think necessarily that equal pressure relates to the physics of what's going on between the front and the, the rear driver. But I, I don't know enough about it, Sujan, to kind of go any further 
in, in that direction with that thought. But okay, so we have to ask, like, why do loudspeaker engineers mount that mount bass drivers isobarically like this? And we'll also come in a moment, like, why don't we see this more often? But the general idea is you can get the same bass extension and performance from two drivers mounted isobarically as you can from one driver in a cabinet with twice the volume. Mm -hmm. So you can make a smaller speaker with the same kind of bass power as a larger speaker, but without having the larger cabinet. Now, the payoff from this, from what I understand, is, is a lack of sensitivity. So you need more power. It makes sense, really, doesn't it? You're moving two, two units to move air, so you need more power into them to kind of get the same sound pressure levels at the front of the speaker. So in this speaker, and it's an active speaker, so we get 100 watts of Class D on the tweeter, 100 watts of Class D on the mid-driver, nothing unusual about that, 200 watts of Class D on the bass drivers. Now, 200 watts, I think, is quite a lot for a speaker this size, and it's probably because of the isobaric implementation of those bass drivers, right? But you told me in a phone call last week that it doesn't have to be, they don't have to, the drivers don't have to face the same direction. No, they can be face-to-face -face right. with one magnet sticking out butt naked, mm -hmm. and they can also invert. So they can face away from each other? Yeah. Okay. They just have to share the same volume. Right. So the question then becomes is like, why don't we see this more often? If it's such a cool way of getting more bass out of a smaller speaker, why isn't this standard practice? I mean, I don't have the answer to this. I don't know whether you do or not, but. No, I have the same question because mm. to my knowledge, the majority of isobaric designs that are still available or were available were British. Right. Lynn, name, um, Wilson Benesh, Neat, yeah. Kudos, and ATC all have or have made isobaric speakers. But outside of the UK, mm. it gets skinny. Totem Acoustics used to have a flagship speaker mm. that was an isobaric. And the tiny little one, that speaker I have upstairs, which is a four and a half inch two-way from oh, Korea. Yeah, South Korean one, yeah. Called the uh, Supermon Mini from Mon Acoustics. Yeah. That's, a, that's an isobaric. It has a hidden four-inch driver inside the box. That's about the extent of isobaric designs I'm aware of. And so this was news to me that Antelope now makes them. It's also interesting because this is an active. I don't right. know. I, this is the first isobaric active I've seen, which is why I kind of really caught my attention. Like, oh, wow, that's pretty unusual. I mean, this is pitched at the pro studio people. This is not pitched at audiophiles. That doesn't mean that audiophiles couldn't get into it and couldn't you know, go and have a listen somewhere and you know, maybe use them in the home. I mean, as we have discussed ad nauseum on this podcast, Rajan, is that we, um, active speakers are very much a strong future for most, I guess, most hi-fi operation. I don't know. But I think active speakers with majority, but not exclusively, class D amplification. Because, because class D amps don't generate as much heat as class AB, and also the power supplies as well. Like if they're a switching power supply and a switching amplifier, you, you've got the lowest heat you could possibly have from that amplifier unit, right? And that can go into a tiny loudspeaker, whereas you couldn't put a class AB 
amp as easily into that same box. You might be able to get away with it on the tweeter, especially right. if you're running your class AB amplifier of maybe 10 or 20 watts off a switch mode power supply. Which is, I think, what Kef did with the LS60 wireless. Class AB on the tweeter. I think Sonus Faber did it with that Duetto speaker that I covered last year. Class AB on the tweeter. Class D on the mid-bass driver because Class D is you know, made for bass, really. I think from what I can tell, if you're trying to sell an active speaker to a diehard audiophile, you've really got to put Class AB on the tweeter for that diehard audiophile to take you seriously, right? Because otherwise you'll go, oh, Class that D, would, better. <laughs> that would be me. Really? Okay. Because I just recently did review uh, a fully active DSP-controlled mm. Class D speaker, and the one misgiving I had had to do with the upper mid-range and treble, where I thought it was a little overdamped. Right. So that same ultimate control and grippiness that is so wonderful in the bass, mm. as the frequencies ascend, I found it just a little bit less pleasing. And I was wondering if I could hear that same speaker with at least the treble and maybe even the mid-range class AB mm. and leave class D just for the woofer section, with that minor complaint that I had, that was really the only one that I had, mm. of the slight dryness and overdamping, would that then have gone away? I don't know, but it had me curious. Yeah, I do wonder about that. I wonder you know, why some manufacturers go class D top to bottom. Maybe it's, an, it's a financial thing, bill of materials thing, but maybe, maybe it's a heat thing. Maybe the heat dissipation from any form of class AB amplifier in the speaker cabinet is just too difficult to manage. I don't know. I mean, Bookart do class D all the way up and down. Um, I'm trying to think of another one. So I've got, oh, I'm going to get this wrong. I've got a pair of Piega here at the moment, but I, I'm pretty sure they're all Class D. If I've got that wrong, please let me know in the comments, but it's a 701 Gen 2. I think it's Class D top to bottom, but I don't know. That has a very different tweeter, though, so this is more of an, an exception than anything else, you know, because that's got a ribbon tweeter. Well, my assumption is that possibly... Speaker manufacturers don't have the design wherewithal in-house mm. to design their own Class AB amplifier for a tweeter, whereas they can go to Purify or UCD or they can get ready-made power modules right. that they then they just program the DSP. But basically, they're a lot bigger designers. They might know how to design a driver and certainly mm. know how to design a crossover and cabinet. Maybe an excellent Class AB amplifier just for tweeter use they don't really know how to design. And maybe it's much harder to get one of those OEM than all of those different Class D modules that are made for three ways, two ways, four ways. You just mm -hmm. plug in what you want and you get the module. Maybe? Is that why we see oh, fewer? You know, here's an interesting twist on this. And I think this is the reason that Bookart go Class D. See, look, a motorbike. Why Bookart go Class D is because I think the modules have become user-swappable. So if one dies, you can unscrew the back plate and then take one out and plug a new one in, which mm -hmm. I think is brilliant. And I think this is a feature that a lot of, I know a lot of my commenters really enthused about that because they're worried. Their main concern with class, sorry, with active speakers is like, what if the amp, you know, an amp dies inside? You know, the whole thing has to go back. I would argue that if your amp dies anyway, then you, you have no sound. So whether the amp is in the speaker or external, you still have no sound. But I understand, like, if you've got a floor standing active 
and an amp module dies, you've got to cart that whole speaker back to the store or you've got to ship it God knows where. That's that, that's an inconvenience, to say the least. <laughs> and, and because Bookart are direct selling, they obviously don't want the customers buying, let's say, in Australia from Denmark to then get you know a, an amplifier module. Let's say it's, it's dead on arrival because of some knock-in shipping in transit. They can just ship a new module out and the user can fit it, which I think is great. It's brilliant. And, and I'm, I think... I'm not sure of any other company that's doing that at the moment because Kef don't do it, Key don't do it, Dutch and Dutch don't do it. I'm not singling them out for like <laughs> bad treatment here. I'm just saying this is something that this is a plus for class D because I think class AB module swapping those out for users, I think that might be more of an ask. Don't know. Possibly. Okay, Sujan, I think back to you for your final uh, item of the day. Yes, now we're getting into Ferrari Lamborghini territory. Okay. And now I'm going to change my headdress, and you'll have to describe oh, what God. it is that you see, all right? And I won't be able to hear you just for a couple of seconds. So I can say what I like. Okay. Look out, world. I don't know what Sujan is about to do here, but he's going to do something odd. Uh, oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> what the hell are they? Actually, I, I do know what they are, but no. <laughs> no. So how would you describe what you just saw? From an aesthetics point of view, it's a no from me. Yes, I agree. It's, I mean, I. they remind me of those, was it... AKG had a headphone like that years ago? Called the K1000. Right, and it was just these kind of flappy bits that... I mean, I think I tried a pair once in, in Berlin about eight years ago, or some... Maybe there was another company that made a, a kind of a, a follow-up to that. Maybe it was some AKG engineers. I can't remember now. Very uncomfortable from, from what I remember. Didn't love them. But how would you describe what it is that you see? Okay, Obviously, it's yes. a headphone, right? Sorry, yes, it's a headphone. It's kind of got this sort of, it's like a plastic piece, maybe with a metal exterior. It's, oh God, I mean, I'm talking about the what would normally be the ear cups. They're not ear cups. They're just this plastic piece that probably has some kind of driver on the inside. It has to, if it's a headphone. Um, yeah, it, it look, because of the plastic nature of those, I'll use the the term loosely, ear cups, Srijan. I, I just I have wings. Wings, okay, like wings that fold in and out, like from your ears, so you can adjust the angle mm -hmm. uh, to which they fire into your ears, which I guess was the 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 selling point of the AKG back way back when. But I believe these are your favorite headphones of all time, aren't they? They are. But as you rightly notice, because they are not housebroken when it <laughs> comes to looks. No. They have looks only a mother could love on a good day. <laughs> now, we have something that looks much more normal. And since you will put images behind our two talking heads, mm -hmm. the people that actually watch this will actually see what the new models look like. But before cool. we get there... Before we even get to that, we need to know the name of the company and what, what, we'll, what it is. We'll, you just we'll get there. Okay, we'll all right. Get there. So to cover what this is, and why I like it so much, mm. we need to cover different types of headphone drivers. Now, okay. if I were to ask you what the most common 
most often used headphone type driver is? What would you say? I think by far it would be the, the dynamic driver. Correct. And so a dynamic driver would either be a cone or a dome mm -hmm. to which we attach a cylinder that mm -hmm. is glued to the middle of the cone or dome. Mm -hmm. Around that cylinder, we wrap aluminum or copper or silver wire, mm -hmm. which becomes the voice coil. So then we immerse our voice coil, the coils of wire that are on the voice coil former glued to the cone or dome into a donut shaped magnet. And now as we apply signal to the voice coil, the voice coil inside the magnetic field moves up and down. Mm -hmm. And since the corner dome is attached to the voice coil, it's trying to follow that movement against the resistive and restorative force of the visible rubber surround and the hidden second suspension, which is called the spider, which helps to center the voice coil inside the gap. It just said connect. Are we still, are we still good? Yeah, I think we're still good. I just, maybe we just let's start that again. You dropped off then, not me, which is kind of weird. Okay, okay let's, let's, let's take it from the top, Sajan. Uh, right. immer immersing the voice call in a donut. So now we are immersing our voice call inside a donut-shaped magnet. So we have the voice call surrounded or in a magnetic force field. And as we apply signal, the voice call wants to move up and down and being attached to the cone or dome. The cone or dome is trying to follow the voice call movement against the resistive force of the visible surround, mm -hmm. which is usually rubber, could also be foam. And there's a hidden inner suspension that centers the voice call. So with a dynamic driver, we have a lot of extra moving mass. The moving mass is the sum of the cone or dome, the surround, the voice call, the voice call former, and the inner suspension. And our amplifier doesn't actually drive the driver. Our amplifier is driving a voice coil, and then the voice coil is transferring the movement to the cone or dome that's trying to not lose its shape. The good thing about the dynamic driver is it's completely open to the front. There's nothing obscuring it. A slight negative is that right behind it sits a magnet, and that magnet becomes a barrier for first reflections where the rear wave of the cone or dome hits the magnet and then wants to return right back through the diaphragm. Apparently, the first dynamic driver was invented by Edward Kellogg and Chester Rice in 1925. So it's 100-year-old technology. Wow, okay. Now that we've covered that, what in a headphone would you say is the next most popular type of driver? I think that would have to be a planar magnetic type driver. Correct. And what that is, is we are taking a plastic non-conductive foil and we are stretching it on a round or oval or even a square shaped frame, mm -hmm. like a drum skin. Now atop that, that tautly stretched foil, we etch a voice coil that can either be concentric or spiral shaped, or it could be zigzag like serpentine. Mm -hmm. That's now our voice coil, which is conductive, to which we apply our signal. And for the magnetic field to immerse that voice coil, we need what's called stay for window shutter magnets, which go at least on one side of the foil, 
but with a balanced motor on both sides of mm -hmm. our driver. So when the driver looks at the world, or in our case, at our ear, it's like in jail. It looks through a window, <laughs> through a window right. with bars. Okay. So 50% of that driver's surface is basically covered up. Hmm. And that, again, becomes a source of first reflections, of resonances, of air turbulence, mm -hmm. and of phase shift. But the moving mass of that driver is a lot lower than that of a dynamic driver. So that's the planar magnetic or planar driver. Mm -hmm. Can you think of another type of driver that we use in headphones? So there's the Stax headphone, which is an electrostat. Exactly. So the electrostat is not that dissimilar in that it has a central membrane that is very thin, but this time it's conductive. Mm -hmm. And to that membrane, we apply a permanent standing DC voltage, usually around 550 volts, could be up to 620. Mm. So our film is, electric, is electrically charged, and we are putting it between two opposingly charged plates mm -hmm. that have holes in them so that the sound can go through. No magnets. We're not using electromagnetic force. We're using static electricity to move that membrane in the middle. Mm -hmm. The probably most famous loudspeakers of their sort were the original Martin Logans. Yeah. And Stax is the original company that I believe popularized electrostatic loudspeakers. But today mm -hmm. we also have Dan Clark. We have mm -hmm. Hi-Fi Man. We have Sennheiser, Odyssey, and we have Warwick. Okay. Now, there's yet another one that <laughs> happens to come from your city of Berlin. Okay. Oh, you mean driver type? Yes. So we're talking, you're talking about the head audio, the headphone that uses the uh, air motion transformer or AMT that, that they pulled basically the topology from their speaker tweeter and put it in a headphone with some significant tweaks to ensure that it covers as much of the audible range as possible, although headphone two doesn't go much below 40 hertz. So an AMT is very similar to a planar magnetic driver in that we have a non-conductive foil, mm -hmm. which happens to be very long. <clears throat> On that foil, we apply voice call traces. Mm -hmm. But now, unlike the planar, we fold those voice, we fold our film so it looks like an accordion with pleats. And as we apply magnetic force to that voice coil, it's like an accordion. Either we are pushing or we are pulling. So we're either squeezing air out from behind, from between the pleats, or we're sucking it back in. Mm -hmm. And now there is a fifth type driver, which huh. happens to be what is in that odd looking headphone that we talked about. And that is a ribbon. Okay. Now, if I took the driver that is inside that headphone out, it would look like this. So you have, here's one I made earlier. So it's like a, it's like a metal piece in a tray. But it, the, the metal piece is, looks like it's, it's corrugated. It's wavy. Correct. And the only thing that is missing from this narrow but long sliver of corrugated aluminum mm. are the magnets on either side, on the long sides. So uh, unlike... The planar magnetic driver, which is edge clamped all around, 
on the ribbon, it's really only attached on the two narrow sides and it's completely free to move in between because the sides here are not attached. So the longer sides, it's free to move on, on the two. Sh so it's, it's like a long rectangle, corrugated aluminium, mm -hmm. if you live in Europe. And on the, the two sort of pincer ends, it's, it's, it's held in place, but it can move. So wouldn't it move more in the middle than at the ends? Yes, exactly. It would move more in the middle. And this particular driver has plus minus four millimeters of X max, of excursion potential. Okay. Now, the interesting thing is that, first of all, there is nothing in front or behind the actual radiating surface. Mm -hmm. It's completely open, which is why it is possible in this type of odd-looking design hmm. to have open baffles. We don't need an ear cup. This is like an open baffled speaker that has radiation coming out the front and then anti-face coming out the rear. And the ribbon sits right here in the middle. And you're not putting the driver in jail so he doesn't have to fire through magnets or anything like that, right? Because the magnets are the, are the the short ends, right? Yeah, the magnets are on the long side. They're, they're, Sorry, the long side. The, the, yeah. on, okay, okay. Yeah. Right. Now, the unusual thing is that we don't need a voice coil on this because the entire aluminum or aluminium mm. is conductive. That means our amplifier drives every single portion or atom of this mass uh, okay, directly. Okay. Right. The problem is that because this thing is fully conductive, it has nearly no resistance. Mm -hmm. The impedance of this driver is 0 0.018 ohm. Okay. That's like nearly a short circuit, which is why when you see a ribbon tweeter in a speaker, invisible behind the tweeter sits a transformer mm -hmm. in a square little box. Yep. And that transformer converts the low impedance to a high impedance so that the amplifier doesn't see a, a virtual dead short, but it sees six or eight ohms that it expects to see. Okay. But because you can't put two transformers on either side of our head, it would be too heavy <laughs> and it would be very unsightly. What the designer of these ribbon headphones has done is he puts the transformer in a separate box that is shaped like a headphone stand. Ah, uh, okay. So it's it's way down the signal, like the the other end of the cable, right? Exactly. So right. one end of the stand slash transformer has a cable that will plug into the 6.3 or XLR 4 mil output of your mm -hmm. standard headphone amplifier. Yeah. And then the other side of the stand slash transformer will have the regular headphone cable that plugs into the headphones. But don't shit audio make an amplifier specific for that headphone that has the transformer built into the chassis. Oh, the, the, the chair is moving. We can hear the chair. <laughs> it, it talks. Okay, so you've got that then by the look of it. So it's, it's the Jotunheim, but it is for that particular ribbon type of headphone, right? It's the Jotunheim R. It mm -hmm. is a direct drive amplifier made to drive that insanely low impedance, but it's discontinued. No, already? Yeah. It's I, didn't, I didn't know that. Okay. Huh. So, in order to not rely on so-called direct drive ribbon amplifiers, mm. Alexander of RAL, which is the name of the company in Serbia that makes these headphones, mm. has designed this interface box. Okay. So, you can now connect those ribbon headphones to any ordinary headphone amplifier <clears throat> that puts out maybe two watts into 32 ohms because gotcha. right. that's the impedance that the transformer box will present to the amplifier. It will think that it's seeing 32 ohms. 
Ah, okay. These two new headphones under the name RAL 1995, so not RAL Requisite as the original brand mm -hmm. and not RAL Ribbon as the loudspeaker tweeter manufacturer. Is your cat joining us, Sajan? Does your cat mm -hmm. want to say something about, <laughs> about not RAL? Yet. <laughs> not yet. I'm sure I could hear him. <laughs> so we have two new models called yeah. the Magna and the Imanis. Mm -hmm. The Magna sells for 5,700 euros without VAT, and the Imanus sells for 8,600 euros without VAT. So this is really summified, summi yeah. Summified. Yeah. yeah. Okay. But now we have ear pillows, we have ear cups, we have a regular headband. We are now having housebroken ribbons, ribbon headphones that look like you would expect an expensive headphone to look like. There should be images behind our two talking heads so people can see what they will mm -hmm. look like. They're not out yet. They're being built as we speak, mm -hmm. and they will have their public premiere at the Heidelberg. It's called the World of Headphone. It's an event that's taking place next month. Okay, I yeah. And then they will also be at the Munich High End Show at the mm -hmm. MOC, and they mm -hmm. will also have an exhibit at the Parallel Show in the Marriott. Mm -hmm. And there's also upcoming a HeadFi meet called CanJam in New York City. But don't ask me about the date. I, I didn't memorize that. I think CanJam has moved this year. I think it used to be in the middle of February. Now it's, I think it's early March. I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure it is. So it's a little bit later in the year. Uh, but that's the Times Square at the Hotel in Times Square. Very, very popular event that uh, that can jam in New York, as they all are really. But that one in New York is especially busy. So I think it'll be, so, yeah, it'll be for me. Like this is interesting because I would never ever pick up a pair of those RAL requisite ribbons that you have. If I saw them on a table, I'd be like, no, because for me, a head. Uh, headphones joy is not just his sound it's his comfort and being enveloped and you know having that kind of easy relaxed feeling and i look at the rails and go oh no that's just going to put me on edge and i will be sat like with a excuse my, my saying this with a pole up my ass like this like duh, 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 duh. like no <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not doing that so i think it would be this is the right move even though the pricing is only for certain people but it is to yeah make um it's almost like domesticating a ribbon, exactly. a, 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 a ribbon headphone, right? It makes I it call it housebroken, salon yeah. fair, yes. Hmm. The unique thing about these new ones is that the Magna uses two ribbons in parallel mm -hmm. and the Imanus is using three. Okay. And they're wired up in series so that the impedance goes up rather than going down. Right. And now I will explain why this is my preferred headphone driver. And we already covered the fact that there's nothing in front, there's mm -hmm. nothing behind. Yep. There's no extra moving mass. This can't store any energy. And on the open baffle, the right ear hears what the left channel is doing, and the left channel hears what the right ear is doing. It's a little bit more like speaker listening due to the open baffles. And even the new circumoral models, they have an open area in the front of the ear, in the ear cup, mm -hmm. that, again, deliberately leaks some sound so we have some crossfeed going on. Yeah, it's so a little bit more similar yeah. to speaker listening than this complete locked in the head imaging. Yeah, yeah. Now, most likely the most transparent headphone would have probably been considered a Stax electrostat. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. but we would have, we would have described it as being very fast, very open, very transparent, zero distortion, unbelievable trouble out to bad land, but not <laughs> so much not so much bass. No, a little a little lightweight, yeah. and maybe not as dynamic as we would like or as we are used to from dynamic drivers. Mm-hmm. And the ribbons to my ears are what falls between an electrostat for speed, transparency, and all of that. Mm. More dynamics than a dynamic driver because it's a lot faster. It has no moving mass. Uh, It responds much faster. It stops much faster. Mm. And unlike you might think, a ribbon in close proximity to the ear can actually do low bass. Now, these open baffle ribbons were limited to about the mid-30s because there's some cancellation going on of Mm -hmm. inner phase. And so Mm -hmm. without DSP or an analog EQ, they can't really be made to go lower. And so that's why on these new ones, he's increasing the surface area Mm. times two or times three. And he is having some air that is trapped between the driver and the ear. It's like loading. It's like boundary loading, just like when you put speakers really close to the wall. Mm-hmm. So you get more lower and louder bass. Mm-hmm. And okay. so what I would say to people that have listened to where these will be showing, I would simply say that if you are the kind of person that would not say no to being handed the key to a Lamborghini or a Ferrari, and the guy says, here, do you want to take it for a test drive for half an hour? Just make sure you bring it back without a scratch. If you're the type of person who would say yes, I would suggest if you have an opportunity, go listen to these. Even if you have no interest in headfire whatsoever, I think that this will give you an experience of what's possible. And the reason why that can be interesting is that ever since I got these four years ago, I found fault with my speaker systems. I heard Mm -hmm. everything that they couldn't do. Less extension in the treble, less dynamics, more congested sounding, more thick and wooly, and especially in the bass, much slower stoppage. So when the when these stop instantaneously, so a clap is a clap, and it's not like boom, boom, and you yeah. hear the boom. That's what I wanted. And it's taken me four years and a lot of listening and money to sort of change my speaker systems to approach, so not equal, what these ribbon headphones can do. I'll add an icing to that that point about pricing is that these new models are going to sell for a similar price to that which I spent on fitting this office out with acoustic treatments. I mean, obviously with headphones, you sidestep all that nonsense completely. So, I mean, (laughs) I guess, I mean, these acoustic treatments I've got here are probably a a great way to show the advantages of headphones. You know, you could put all the money from that into a pair of, these new RAL 1995 headphones, and that's it. Done. Correct. And I think that you will probably make better sound than most people will ever be able to achieve with loudspeakers, no matter the kind of money you have. I think that's And the other thing that's very obvious to headphone lovers, not so much to people that don't ever do headphones, is that you cut out the room, you cut out noise leakage, so you don't bother somebody next door, which means Mm -hmm. you can listen when you want, to the kind of music you want, at the volumes you want, which with loudspeakers is not the case. If we have neighbors or significant others, we are always limited. Mm -hmm. And also because the headphones take out the room, 
in my mind, and I think you would agree, is that if you really want to know what is on your recordings in terms of detail that's not lost by distance, and in terms of the recorded tonal balance as to how much space should there be, mm. and how tight or woolly or warm or, 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 or dry the recorded bass really is, you need headphones. If you're listening in a room, even with treatments that won't be effective below 200 hertz, you're still not quite clear what the what the bass really oh. should listen should sound like before the room messes it all up. Absolutely. I mean, there's nothing going on behind me that is just touching anything below three. Well, maybe 100 is probably as low as some of these bass traps up here go. But even then, low bass, forget it. Headphones are, are light years ahead of loudspeakers in a room. And I guess this is the the kind of the, the a fact that I get frustrated with, but I know it's true because I would much prefer to sit in, in front of loudspeakers in a room. But I know that, for example, these headphones I'm wearing, the Meze 109, Pro. 109 Pro, you know, it, it's like having a five grand like loudspeaker system on my head. And right. they're like... Yeah, yeah just I, I just think it's that kind of leveling. So it's a, it's a bit frustrating for for us as loudspeaker listeners, yeah, to get the key to the Ferrari and then we have to go back to our Ford Fiesta. You know, it's <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. And one last uh, thing that I learned just today is that uh, it takes Raul one man working eight hours a day to make two and a half ribbons. Wow. So for the Imanus, with six of them, one guy has to work two and a half days just to make the drivers. And I'm told that that's why ribbons don't lend themselves to mass manufacture, unlike other drivers. That makes sense. There's, yeah, there's so much manual labor involved. It is so time consuming mm -hmm. that in order to make them well, you can't make very many of them at any one time and they will be expensive. I think these headphones will be sold out before they even come to market. I think they the first, already are. The oh, first run is sold oh, out. There we go. Yeah, limited supply and all that. Yep. So, John, I think our work is done here, and I want to thank you for sticking through this fairly challenging podcast recording. What listeners and viewers might not know, but if you see the, the kind of jump cuts – is that my internet dropped out one, two, three, four times during this recording, and we had to kind of restart and resume. So, Srijan, thanks for joining us, and thanks for your patience. Thank you. See you next time.